So my name is Mike. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at our Center City congregation. And this, uh, about, I guess two weeks ago, I was speaking with a friend of mine who is uh, frequently feeling tired, struggles to get a good night's sleep, and I've been praying for him. So I just asked him, hey, how's that been going? And he said, you know, actually it hasn't gotten much better, but uh, I might have anemia. And he said it like he was excited. Like, oh, I, I might have anemia. I'm looking forward to finding out. I thought, why would you be excited about that? It's a disease, right? Um, and he explained to me, well, uh, for years I've been feeling this way, but I haven't been able to explain why I feel this way. But now there's a possibility that we could actually have a diagnosis, and as a result, a plan for treatment. When you name it, you can actually start to go to work on it, right? Well, confession of sin is kind of like that. The idea that you sin, that you have sin in your life, that you're guilty of sin, is not a fun thought, uh, and nor should it be, right? It's a bad thing. But unless you name it, you can't deal with it. You can't start going to work on it. Today we're looking at the part of the Apostles' Creed, that ancient summary of Christian doctrine, that uh, says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Last week we talked about that part as well, and we said that the moment you believe, all of your sins are forgiven. There's kind of a definitive forgiveness. The moment you believe, your sins, past, present, and future, no longer counted to you. God views you as though you sinned and as though you always obeyed. But today we're going to talk about how we continue to experience forgiveness of sins from God, even after we believe, as we continue to confess our sins to God. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and therefore, walk in the light by not hiding your sins, by confessing your sins, by sinning no more, and by receiving forgiveness. So first, walk in the light. Our passage today, the first John 1 that was just read for us, begins with this uh, summary declaration that God is light. Now, light in the Bible can refer to a number of different things, but here it's referring to purity. It says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's saying, whoever God is, he is that all the way through. There's no dark side to God. There's no part of himself that has to remain hidden because it's not good. He's all truth with no lie. He's pure justice with no injustice. He's pure goodness with no evil. He is who he is. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. He's not one kind of God one day, a different kind of God the next day, one kind of God to one group of people, a different kind of God. He is who he is. He's a God of integrity. In other words, he's integrated in who he is. All of who he is coheres in his perfection, eternally, infinitely, unchangeably. So if we say we have fellowship with him, verse 6 says, And yet we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Because you see, what we'd be doing is we'd be saying one thing and living another way. And that's the very thing that we've just heard God does not do. God is who he is through and through. And therefore, if we say we have fellowship with him, we must be who we say we are through and through. So um, if you meet someone who tells you they're a fan of the Sixers, let's say, and you ask them, uh, oh, cool, like, you know, who, who's some of your favorite players? They say, well, I don't really know any of the players. Uh, okay, you know, h- how are you feeling about um, the upcoming games? Well, I don't really care who wins them. What do you think of the game the other night? I never watched the game. Okay, so you, you get, there's something not matching there, right? There's something you're saying about yourself, but nothing in your life actually supports that profession. It doesn't make sense. You're, you're either lying or you're not practicing the truth in some way. There's some deception. Either you've deceived yourself or... You're receiving the other person. And when you meet someone who's actually, you know, like a more dedicated fan of the team, let's say, they're always going to be annoyed by that, right? They don't like that. Because 
when they hear you say that, they want to bond with you over it. They want to say, let's go to a game together, or what do you think of Jimmy Butler, or do you think we can beat the Celtics in the playoffs, and that kind of stuff. And if, you, if they get blankness from that, it damages the relationship too, actually, because you're not who you claim to be. And verse 7 of this passage tells us that same thing. It tells us that if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. Our relationship with one another is deepened. Because who we present ourselves to be and who we actually are are the same. We're integrated. And therefore, we can be fully known by God and by one another. But if you claim to have fellowship with a God of integrity... You say the right things in church, right? But in your heart, you actually uh, treasure and nurture sin. Who you say you are and who you really are don't match. And as a result, you won't really have fellowship with God or with other people. Because even around other people, you're always propping up this version of yourself that's not the real you. And therefore, even if they love you, even if they accept you and like you and welcome you into their community, it's not really you that they love and accept and welcome into their community. It's that version of you that you've been propping up in their sight. And so a lot of people tend to have superficial relationships where you kind of feel loved, but you actually know it's not really you that they love because you haven't let them know you. You've been hiding some feature of yourself towards them, and your fellowship can never be deep if you're hiding from each other, if the who you are inside doesn't match the who you are that you present. People sometimes claim to be a fan of you know, the Sixers, let's say, um, because it's the cool thing to do. And in John's day, it was actually a cool thing to do to claim that you had fellowship with God. Perhaps you even feel some pressure to say you're a Christian because your parents wanted you to do that or your boyfriend or girlfriend wants you to do that or you know, your friend group does. But as long as that doesn't match what's actually inside of you, you're not going to have fellowship with God. You're not going to have real fellowship with one another. That only happens if you actually walk in the light. So how do you do that? That's what the rest of this passage is about. So the first thing it tells us is how not to do it, by not hiding your sins. So verse 8 says the way not to do it is to say we have no sin. Verse 10 similarly says the way not to do it is to say we have not sinned. So one's kind of present tense, one's past tense. One's, you know... What's the big deal with all this sin talk? I don't have any sin. I, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm basically good, right? Or looking back on your life, I've never really done anything that you I've always been a pretty decent person, right? So I, I have not sinned or I have no sin today. It's saying um, that is exactly the way not to walk in the light. So walking in the light is not living in a state of sinless perfection. It's the one who thinks they are in a state of sinless perfection who is actually proving that they're not in the light, that they're in the darkness. Maybe you even felt, when I was talking about God being light, an inconsistency within yourself. Maybe you realized, man, I say I love God, but there is still sin in my life. Well, if you realize that actually, that's good evidence that you're walking in the light. It's only the person who says that they have sin, who's not pretending they don't, who actually is walking in the light. The really dangerous spiritual condition, according to this passage, the one who is in darkness is the one who says they have no sin. The one who says that they have not sinned. It's interesting. Verse 8 says, such a person is not only deceiving others, they're deceiving themselves. 
before I became a Christian, I was around a church, and I would have said that I was a Christian. And I wasn't lying to anyone, as far as I knew, when I said that. And I would tell them even, uh, you know, I'm not all that I could be. I could be doing better, couldn't we all? But, um, you know, I I have a relationship with God and and all that. And if you, I think even if you had asked me, are you saying you have no sin? I'd have said, no, of course I do. But if you pressed me to actually name one, I would have had a much harder time with that. I was that self-deceived. I thought, I'm, I'm a basically good person, decent Christian. When you say you have no sin, you're lying to yourself, basically. It, it's, it's a self-deception that maybe could even admit it in principle. Okay, fine, I fall short. But if, you, if pressed, a lot of us couldn't even name a way that we do fall short, actually. We're so afraid that if there were real sins in there and anyone saw them, they'd have every right to run in the other direction. And that especially if God saw them, he'd have every right to run in the other direction, to cast us off, to forsake us forever. So we admit them in general, but never in particulars, or we try to minimize them. So this is a favorite in my marriage. Uh, My wife will ask me, are you angry? And I think, well, I know Jesus said unrighteous anger is sinful. Uh, No, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm frustrated, right? Right. Uh, I'm not drunk. I'm just buzzed. Uh, I don't love money. I'm just exercising wise financial stewardship, and that's why I invest and save all my money and give none of it away. Or we try to justify it by explaining it away, explaining circumstances. Okay, sure, I got angry, but I was tired. And human beings, we were designed to have rest, right? We can make this sound very pious, like God created us for rest, and I wasn't getting it, you know? And so, of course, this would happen. Um, you know, what, what's, hot, what's the hot personality test now? Enneagram or whatever? Uh, of course I berated that person for failing. I'm a three. You know, I value success. Or, of course I blew off my responsibilities. I'm a seven. I value spontaneity. You know, that kind of... You get the picture. What are we doing in all this? In various ways, we're saying, I have no sin. That's not me. I don't do that stuff. That's them. The bad... I, I have no sin. I haven't sinned. But the only person you're deceiving is yourself. The people who know you best, like really know you, they've seen it. And the God who is light, he's seen it. Why hide it? It may feel safer to hide it. It does. But if people accept that version of you, it's not you they're accepting. You feel loved, but it's not you. You haven't let them see you. You can tell yourself even that God loves you and that he accepts you just as you are, but you haven't actually let him see you consciously. You've deceived yourself into thinking that there's no sin there for him to forgive. It's not the one of sinless perfection who walks in the light. It's not the one who minimizes their sin. It's not the one who justifies their sin. It's the one who confesses their sin. So let's talk about that. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So remember, why, why are we so prone to hide our sins? Because we're afraid. We know that if they got out, people would run in the other direction. Now, how much truer is that of the God who is light? At least with other people, you can always hold out hope that they'll sympathize, that they'll say, hey, you know, I sin too, and nobody's perfect. God doesn't say that. God is perfect. He is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If anyone has the right to say, what, what did you just say? Forget you. That's God. And here we read just the opposite, that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walking in the light, then, 
with a God who is light while you're a sinner can't mean pretending you have no sin. What it means is the sin comes into the light. It's confessed. It's brought out. It's exposed. So that who I say I am does match who I am. I'm saying I'm a sinner and I confess my sins. I believe in the God who forgives sin. That's what makes me a Christian. But my profession of faith is not a profession of my perfection. It's a profession of his perfection and of his ability to forgive, even the worst of sinners. That's how you walk with integrity, though. You confess it. So what is confession? Well, 1 John uh, chapter 3 is going to define sin for us as lawlessness. So sin is any failure to be or do what God requires in his law. And often if you know his law well, the moment you fail to be or do what it requires, the Spirit will bring conviction to you and bring an awareness of that. But it it is important as Christians to not wait for that, to do some self-examining, often by exposing yourself to God's law, Bible reading, or using things like the Ten Commandments or the Fruit of the Spirit or a summary of love in 1 Corinthians 13, Beatitudes, summaries of God's law and, and an explanation of what they mean, and asking the Spirit to show you where you fail to be or do what that law requires. As the Spirit brings awareness of that, confession is admitting it, usually out loud, and to God. So confession, admitting out loud to God the ways you fail to be or do what he requires in his law. Psalm 51.4, David does this, and he says to God, Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be blameless in your words and justified in your judgment. So see, David's not pretending that his sin was against no one else, but what he is doing is he's owning that his sin is primarily against the Lord saying, against you and you only have I sinned. And then he doesn't minimize it. He says, I've done what's evil in your sight. He doesn't excuse it or justify it. He says, you might be blameless in your words and justified in your judgment. He's basically saying, because of what this sin is, you'd be justified to cast me off. You'd be justified to pour out your wrath on me. I confess. And that's the way we must come to God. Audibly confessing this is the way that I've sinned against you without excuse. Kind of a practical tip on that. The best way to make sure you're not making excuses for your sin is just to keep the confession brief. You don't have to share all the details of your day of why it kind of was likely that you would do that anyway. You just own what you did. God, I sinned against you when I mourned the success of that person who I compare myself to. To that point, uh, confession should also be specific. So in Psalm 51, David actually kicks off the psalm by telling us what situation he's talking about when he sinned with Bathsheba. You don't have to know the background for this sermon, but the point is he got specific. Even in this passage, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Sins is plural, implying that there's specific sins that you're going to have in mind, not just, God, I'm a sinner, but here's the ways I've sinned against you. And you call it what the Bible calls it. So don't just say, God, I went to that website I'm not supposed to go to. Say, God, I committed adultery in my heart when I lusted after that person on the computer screen. And finally, confession of sin involves grief. Confession of mistakes doesn't involve grief. You didn't do anything culpably wrong. So the other night, I was giving my seven-month-old son a bath, and I got soap in his eyes, crying, screaming. I felt terrible. I apologized to him. But I didn't feel like I had sinned against him. It wasn't intentional. Just an honest mistake. But when we sin against God, 
we're not just making mistakes. We're culpably failing to be or do what he requires in his law. We don't have a good excuse for it. And we're doing it against the one who is light, who has never done anything wrong, who has never wronged us in any way. So that should carry with it a sense of grief, a sense of, God, this is against you that I've done this, against your perfection, against your holiness, against your light. So what are we doing in all this? We're agreeing with God about our sin. That's the simplest, short definition of what confession is. It's agreeing with God about our sin. It's agreeing that we're guilty of it. It's agreeing that it's against him. It's agreeing that we didn't have an excuse. It's agreeing that it's heinous and offensive in his sight. Now alongside that, primary work of confession towards God, it will often also be appropriate to confess our sins to other human beings. If your sin was against another human being, even as it was ultimately against God, a brief and specific confession is in order, an apology towards that other human. If your sin was public in some way, the confession should also be public. David also gives us an example of this. That Psalm 51 where he writes out his confession against you, you only have a sin, he tells the situation. He addresses it to the choir master. It's to the worship leader. Say, I want you to sing this. I want you to uh, read this in front of the whole congregation. Why is he dragging that all out there? Because his sin was public in nature. People knew about it. And so he had to show people that he was guilty, admitting it, and moving in a new direction. So a good guideline for that, we're getting very practical today. Now, a good guideline for that is you generally want to keep the confession as notorious as the sin. So however wide the spread of the sin is, that's how wide you want the repentance to be. There are also cases where a group of people sin against someone together, and it's appropriate for them to say, we have sinned. So Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Old Testament story, it's okay if you don't know it. A group of guys sell, sell their brother into slavery, and they get, come together, and they say, we have sinned. So when one people group sins against another people group, it's appropriate and fitting for members of that group to confess that sin together, even if they individually weren't as culpable for it, maybe, as other people in that community. If a group of friends has normalized sin amongst themselves, like making racist jokes together or getting drunk together. Uh, That group shouldn't just be confessing those sins individually to God. They should actually come together and say, we have sinned and we are now committed to moving in a new direction. That's one of the reasons we often confess our sins together at City Light during our services on Sunday. We want to agree with God about our sin. We want to walk in the light and not pretend that we have no sin. We also try to create space for you to confess individually to God so that you're confessing specific sin specifically. And so finally, if one of the benefits of walking in the light is fellowship with one another, it makes sense that we would also confess sins to other people, even if the sin wasn't against them or public in nature. Uh, Because what it's doing is it's letting that person know me for who I really am. It's getting who I am into the light so that we can have a deeper fellowship with one another. It takes the sin from being something that's just inside of me to something now I'm acknowledging that it impacts other people, that it has has a reality outside of itself, outside of me, outside of my mind. And I experience that reality when I confess it to a real person in front of me. On top of that, I experience the reality of God's grace to me. 
as they pronounce to me that my sins have been forgiven because of what Christ has said in his promise and his word. I, I'm Roman Catholic background. I understand the Catholic Church has done some weird things and put some superstition around that. But the practice itself actually has some positives that we shouldn't lose even as we resist the way they tend to use it as kind of like the priest himself is Christ for you and offers forgiveness. That's, that's not what this is saying. But nonetheless, it's a means of grace to us. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in his classic work Life Together says, Does all this mean confession to a brother is a divine law? No. Confession to another human is not a law. It is an offer of divine help for the sinner. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated the person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So he's saying, confession to another human is not a divine law, except kind of in some of those cases I already mentioned, but it is a divine help. It's meant to be there for you. It's the breakthrough to community. When people actually see you at your worst and you let them see you there, And they stay, and they still love you. And they say to you, Mike, you've confessed your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a breakthrough to a deeper kind of fellowship than you can have when everybody's hiding stuff from each other. Everybody's pretending that that they don't sin. You're not going to have deep fellowship with each other if that's the way you relate to each other. I know it's scary, but it's it's the breakthrough to true community. It's also the breakthrough to actually fighting the sin. You know, he says... Bonhoeffer says, sin loves the darkness, right? It wants to isolate you and keep you fighting this on your own because you're afraid to tell anyone about it. That's a recipe for that sin having a lot of power over your life. When you can get it out into the light and get other people speaking the truth of God into it, you can actually start to put it to death. Which brings us to the next thing we're going to talk about, putting it to death. Walk in the light by sinning no more. So, uh, John rebukes the one who says they have no sin. He holds up for us the value of confession, and he promises us forgiveness if we confess our sins. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, the reason I'm telling you all that stuff is so that you may not sin. It's interesting, his strategy, right? If he, if he, he wants to get us not to sin, what does he tell us to do? Confess your sins. What does he promise us? God will forgive you of your sins. That's the way you'll stop sinning. Both religious and irreligious people will disagree with John at that point. Religious people are going to say, don't tell people God forgives their sins, because then they'll just keep doing it. You've got to be hard on them, right? You've got to keep giving them the guilt, and then they'll want to get free from the guilt by stopping doing it. So don't tell people God's going to forgive their sins. On the other hand, irreligious people are going to say, don't tell people to confess their sins, They'll get down on themselves. They'll think of themselves as sinners, and then they'll keep sinning. What we need to do instead is get people with positive thoughts in their mind. You're a beloved child of God. That's kind of the Christian spin, right? You, You throw all that in there, and you only think about that. You don't confess your sins, because that's negative. And then you'll start to live like a beloved child of God. John disagrees with both of those. He says you have to confess your sins. You can't just think them away. And God forgives you your sins. And he thinks those are the things you have to believe if you're actually going to stop sinning. Now, why? Well, think about it. If you don't know that God forgives your sins, 
how likely are you to keep confessing them? If you think God only accepts the good people, so I better not have any sins to confess, what are you going to do? You're going to stop confessing them. You're going to deceive yourself and start telling yourself, I must be one of the good people because God only likes the good people, and so don't con-. The irony of that is, now you can't deal with them because you can't confess them. It's the anemia thing, right? You can't name the disease, so it never gets cured, never gets treated. And the irreligious person has the same problem because they're saying, think positive thoughts, you'll manifest a new reality. But you're not dealing with your current reality. There really is a disease. And if you can't name it, you can't go to work on it. Even Most counselors will even tell you that the only flaws that can really kill you are the ones you can't admit to. Denial is the first step, right? First thing you have to get over. You have to be able to admit, confess that I have sin, that I have a problem. Then you can get to work on it. You can't think your way out of sin. You have to confess your way out. Because if you're confessing sin the way we're talking about here, as confession to God of a culpable failure to be or do what he requires in his law, if you're agreeing with him about it, then confession is no longer just admitting sin, it's rejecting it. It's saying, this is evil, this is heinous, I don't want this. I want to be free from this. And that kind of confession can actually bring change. Now, we have to admit, we do often stop short there. I've been challenged on this recently. I can get good at confessing my sin, feeling convicted, confession, not as good at forsaking it. So I can admit it, but I don't do the hard work of saying, now why does God hate this again? And why is this so heinous in his sight? And what's wrong with this? And what does he want to do instead in my life? What does he want to bring out of this? I, you know, feeling convicted recently because I, at night I have this agenda for how I want my time to serve me. I want to be able to watch these sporting events. And then it gets, and then, you know, I got a wife and a kid and other responsibilities and they get in the way and I push them off. So I can confess that to God the next day. Spirit brings conviction. Lord, I confess I was selfish. I was prioritizing myself. Uh, I ask your forgiveness. Okay. Now what do you want to do today? I hope I get to watch some basketball games, you know? Okay, like that's not really forsaking, right? That's not really rejecting. With the confession, there should be a, I forsake this, Lord. Today, Lord, use me however you want to use me. I would love to watch a basketball game today, but I don't need that. I'm here for your glory not to consume things for me. And so if you want to use me in another way, go for it. I confess often that I'm comparing myself to others. Feel guilty, confess it, okay. But where's the, I forsake this. Today I commit to celebrate what you're doing in the lives of others. I give you thanks for what you're doing in so-and-so's life. In fact, I pray you would bless them more today and bring more good into their lives. So walking in the darkness is not only hiding sin. That's one way you walk in the darkness. The other way is nurturing sin, holding on to it, confessing it when in fact you have no intention to actually let go of it. Those are a path to darkness. Are you not only confessing sin, are you rejecting it? Are you admitting it and rejecting it? Can you call to mind what your habitual sin patterns are and bring the truth of God to bear on those things for why you want to walk in a new direction? Confession of sin is not given to us that we might do it and then keep sinning. That's a path back into darkness. Confession and forgiveness are given to us so that we might sin no more. And so John says, I want you to know your sins are forgiven so that you might not do them. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He goes on in chapter 2. He realizes he's writing to sinners. He says, even if from here you do sin... I want you to receive forgiveness. And that's the last thing we'll talk about.
Last way to walk in the light we'll talk about today. Reject this sin, sin no more, but receive forgiveness. Some Christians don't do this, and so they're stuck in a pattern of self-loathing, of shame, and of guilt, because they live with a constant sense of their sins and no awareness of God's forgiveness, no awareness of his mercy over them. But our confession in the creed is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, not just initially when you believe for your past sins, but that God continues to forgive the sins of Christians until the day they die. This passage gives Christians four reasons, especially, to know that God forgives you of your sins, even the ones you commit after you believe. So I'm just going to briefly explain each of them, and I will keep it brief. I understand I'm on my fifth point. So, First reason is in verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. From what sin? All right. A few people talk back. All sin, right? That means there's not a single sin you can commit if you're a Christian for which Jesus has not already died and shed his blood for. His blood, how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died? All of them, right? None of us were alive then. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin, past, present, future. Which means, if you confess your sin, and then you keep living as though you have not been cleansed, you're saying that the blood of Jesus is insufficient to cleanse you from all sin. Second reason, verse 9. says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I kind of expected this verse to say, God is merciful and loving to forgive us our sins. But it actually points to his attributes of faithfulness and justice for the reasons that he forgives our sin. Because here's the deal. God made a promise that to those who trust Christ, he would forgive all their sins. If at some point in the future then, you sin and God says, eh, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's unfaithfulness. That's God failing to be true to his word. On the cross... Jesus completely satisfies the demands of justice that stood against you. Every one of your sins is paid for. If God then, if you sin again and God says, eh, I'm going to charge you that one to your account, that would be unjust of God. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cancel the debt, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to clean you of the shame. So which means, if you're a Christian, and you continue to wallow in guilt and shame, you are saying that God is not faithful, that sometimes he doesn't keep his promises, that God is not just, that he won't actually, uh, that he will still charge to my account what's already been charged to Christ's account. Third reason, chapter 2, verse 1, says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, saying we have someone speaking on our behalf before the Father, a defense attorney if you wanted to use kind of modern language. We confessed in the creed a few weeks ago that Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what's he doing there? This, this passage shows us one of the things he's doing there is he's representing us. His righteousness is there right before the face of the Father, advocating on our behalf for our forgiveness. The full payment for our sins, the righteousness that represents us before the Father is there in Christ Jesus, advocating for you. Which means... If you as a Christian continue to, to live as though God views you as unrighteous, you're saying that the righteousness of Christ is insufficient to defend you before 
the justice of God. You're saying that there's evidence now that you've brought into the courtroom that your defender could not possibly defend you from. Fourth reason, chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For those of you who uh, weren't with us a few weeks ago when we looked at propitiation, propitiation means when, when Christ died on the cross, he actually takes the wrath of God against our sins. So that feeling that you had that if anyone saw this, they should punish me for it, that's true. But instead of punishing you for it, God punishes Christ for it. And so Christ renders God propitious, which is an old word meaning favorable towards you. And Christ now, though he's no longer paying for your sins, stands in heaven as the propitiation for your sins, as the one who has made payment for them, as the one who does render God favorable to you because of the great love that God had for you that sent him in the first place. God is now for you in Christ Jesus in spite of your sin, which means if you continue to relate to God as a Christian, as though he does not favor you, as though he is not for you, You're saying that Christ is not a sufficient propitiation for your sins, that there's wrath of God left that he didn't absorb, that there's favor of God that he has not procured. So what what am I saying? I'm saying that as a Christian, if you live and wallow in shame and despair as a result of your sins, as a result of anything, frankly, you're either accusing God of not being who he is, it's an assault on his character, on his faithfulness and justice, or It's an insult to the work of Christ, as though his work is incomplete in some way, and you're you're the one that it couldn't cover. It can it can propitiate the sins of the whole world, but not yours. How much pride does it take to say that to God? But I do it. We do it. So how can God forgive you for sins you keep committing? The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. He's faithful and just to forgive sin and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Jesus the righteous one is your advocate before the Father. And he is the propitiation for your sins. Do you, you have to see both how offensive your sin is to God and how freely he forgives it. It's so offensive that only the blood of Jesus could cleanse you from it. And yet, it did. You do have a propitiation. You do have an advocate before the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So how could you keep sinning? against the one who shed his blood, so that very sin that you're about to commit could be forgiven. Sin no more. But at the same time, how could you keep wallowing in despair and shame when the debt has been canceled, when the shame has been taken by Christ in your place, when you have an advocate before the Father, when you have a propitiation for your sins? Thomas Brooks, old pastor, said, this, the sense of his great love should engage a man forever to love and honor his surety, Christ, and to bless that hand that has paid the debt and canceled the books. But to sit down discouraged when the debt is satisfied is a sin which bespeaks repentance. He's saying, you want to see real sin, okay? Sitting down discouraged when your sins have been forgiven, that's a sin that bespeaks repentance. Don't sit down discouraged when your sin has been forgiven. We believe in the forgiveness of sins because we have a propitiation before the Father. We have the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. We have a faithful and just God. We have an advocate before our Father. Walk in the light. 
Don't hide your sin. Bring it out. Confess it to him. And if you have his forgiveness, who cares how people respond to you? Confess away. Find some people that you trust. Get it out into the light. Get them engaged in the battle with you. Confess it. Do it no more. And rejoice in the forgiveness that he gives. Let's pray. Our Father, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. We confess, Lord, that we are not those who have not sinned. We are not those who have no sin today. And yet we come before you today pleading the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. We come before you today, not because we are worthy, but because you are faithful and you are just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come before you today in the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate before you. We come to you today through our propitiation, Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who stands before your throne, who has paid for all of our sins, who has given us his righteousness, who cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. God, we are still uh, sinners today in need of your grace. We thank you that you give it. We thank you that you promise it. I pray that you would give us a deep experience of it today, that we would not sit down discouraged when our debt has been canceled, that we would rejoice instead in the forgiveness that we have been given, and that that very rejoicing would compel us to go and sin no more. We ask this in the name of our advocate, Jesus Christ.